bitch. Ah, you know what old Jack Burton always says at a time like this? When you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. Howdy folks and welcome to a new episode of the We Love Dad Movies podcast. I am Ewan and today I'm joined by Josh Brown. Hello Ewan Patterson. Hello Josh. What are we talking about today? We are talking about Cape Fear my friend and I am very excited. Thirty seconds into this podcast, and you have already fulfilled a two-day dream of hearing the Cape Fear theme played live. So there, there you go. <laughs> this is already the best podcast I've ever been a part uh, of. So it's a great much. theme. It's a great, great theme. But yeah, Josh, one of my former colleagues at What Culture and number one patron backer, it is lovely <laughs> to have you on here. Uh, I feel like I've messaged so many people, being like, "Hey, what? Go on, go on to the pod. Give it. What's your favorite dab movie?" And you know, I didn't imagine that this would be on here. And, and let's let me be clear right now, folks. This is not this is not the dad movie that Josh Brown has chosen. This is something that I have inflicted upon him. But it was a happy coincidence, wasn't it? It absolutely was. You know, like you mentioned there, you're asking around. You're asking what people's favorite dad movies uh, they have. And it's such a big question. Like I genuinely <laughs> spent the entire night on the day that you messaged me. <laughs> Thinking about it, going through my letterbox and asking my own dad what he liked because you don't want to get the pick wrong coming onto this podcast, is in my opinion. So actually, thank you for saying, Josh, we're doing Cape Fear. Can it's you? It's out of your hands. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because like you said, you know, it's actually a real um, happy coincidence because over the past year, uh, my girlfriend and I have been watching every Martin Scorsese feature-length movie, uh, so none of the shorts and none of the documentaries, admittedly, but every, you know, proper feature-length he's he's been doing. And it was literally, I was getting onto Cape Fear when you asked, and I thought, have you read my mind or have you just been stalking my letterbox? Because you know <laughs> some stuff. Yeah, because, you know, we were doing some spooky-themed content for um, for the pod this October. We did a few, like dad adjacent well it is all dad stuff i was particularly fun with last week we did cobra which is like yes. a sliced alone movie where it's basically part italian slasher it's like a wild time um and we, we we've scraped on through past the finish line just after for that that lovely post spooky season come down with this but cape veer is like one of my dad's favorites and i'm not like he um he loved both, but particularly loved the 1962 original. But yeah. like for me, having seen both of them, I do think that the remake, even though I think like they're on par, there is just something about the remake that I find more interesting as a film. I think if you look at the OG Cape Fear, as brilliantly crafted as it is, and I love Robert Mitchum. My favorite discoveries this year has been Robert Mitchum. Maybe not a discovery, but I've like got out of my way to watch a lot of his movies i watched the yakuza the other month which was just like the best thing ever it's such a good film fully recommend watching it if you haven't already uh, and i've got like the friends of eddie coyle on my watch list to come up next but um cape fear where you know traditionally he played in most movies and in the, in the noirs of like the 40s and 50s you know mitchum was the 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 classic like strong man protagonist archetype and we see with with Cape Fear and also Night of the Hunter, which I haven't seen yet, which uh, is another was another one that my my parents really liked. Um, he just plays the most rotten, evil man ever in Max Cady. Um, not the um, not quite the the scene chewingness that that De Niro gives us in the remake, um, but still a thoroughly chilling performance. And the thing that always sticks out to me about 
both these movies is that the original it very much feels like you know you have this perfectly happy little suburban family you got gregory peck perhaps the most beautiful star of his age um with the most immaculate family ever and he's the most upstanding lawyer his life is spotless and here comes greasy sweaty big strong man max katie to come in and ruin everything and you get the scorsese movie and every what you got you got nick Knoll, and i love me a bit of nick Knoll, but in this one Sam Bowden, he's just like he's he's a he's got his own wrinkles and flaws and demons, and so does his wife, and so does his child, and Katie himself is much more like almost takes on like a a spiritually divine like evil demon quality to it, um, and I think like as much as the movie itself is you know a, a pretty straightforward remake in many ways, obviously there are key areas where it diverges in the plot, tonally. And, you know, thematically, they're, they're two very different movies, and I, I, I love them both. <laughs> this is what I'm wanting from you tonight, you in passing. I have not <laughs> seen the original. I've seen Kip Fear Scorsese's version twice now. In mm. the big difference that everyone keeps talking about every time I Google this movie is just how more potentially complex the characters are like you mentioned there you know in terms of their flaws and their kind of skeletons that they all have hiding in their closets to a certain degree especially um sam you know this time around he's kind of like a dirtbag in a lot of ways he's got a lot of flaws obviously everyone in this movie to varying degrees is kind of a dirtbag none at the level of uh katie himself though of course he was just like you said scenery chewing like speaking in tongues completely batshit uh and it's it's a great performance of course by um robert de niro as well but yeah like i i forgot how hard this movie goes it doesn't need to go this hard at all and it it's it stands out so much um from scorsese's other work even around this time like it's almost him kind of getting one to experiment with to kind of be unashamedly inspired by other filmmakers that i'm probably sure we'll touch upon like hitchcock de palmer all of that stuff and to just kind of uh go a bit nuts i think everyone in this movie is going a little bit nuts yeah totally i think like it's the perfect fusion of like old hollywood and like his new traditions and techniques that he pioneered over like you know the 70s and 80s or whatever and obviously like you know scorsese had done noir before and stuff like taxi driver um but i love how much this leans into the hitchcock vibes of it all and it's interesting because obviously the original movie was not done by hitchcock but um i believe he was originally involved with it before production passed to a different director um and there were different um elements of different collaborators of hitchcock's that worked on the og too um and it's just interesting how, you know, despite him not being officially involved in either movie, his fingerprints are all over it. You know, the master of the OG master of suspense. That is so fascinating because when I was researching the remake, uh, it actually has a similar story in that um, Steven Spielberg was originally attached to direct it. I was looking at the Wikipedia page before coming on uh, <laughs> this the, podcast. It's the perfect pre-pod preparation. Pre-prod prep. Pre-pre. <laughs> can't get out pre-pod 
preparation. He's done it. He's done it. Yeah, like you know, what everyone slags off Wikipedia, but it's good to get a little. And bit they of... do good work at Wikipedia. They, they do, do good work at Wikipedia. I hey. d- I gave them five pound once a few years ago, and now they never stop emailing me. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? You it's fine because they're good people. But yes, when I was uh, <laughs> when I was looking, I didn't know that Spielberg was originally attached to direct. And essentially, Scorsese and Spielberg did swapsies. Scorsese was going to make Schindler's List. Uh, Spielberg was going to make Cape Fear. Scorsese wasn't feeling Schindler's List, so he swapped it for this project. But oh uh, no, man, the vibes are off for me, Stephen. The vibes aren't right right now. Give me, I was like, give me the tongue-speaking <laughs> rapist serial killer. That's the movie I want to do right now. Uh, yeah, but obviously, even with that in mind, you know, Spielberg stayed on as a producer, so it's kind of like both of these movies are movies which have the fingerprints of so many different creatives and filmmakers like all over them even in terms of Scorsese's direction like I was mentioning you know it's like you said you know it's very Hitchcock inspired and it's kind of like this amalgamation this kind of weird Frankenstein's monster of a movie that's that's way more fascinating to pick apart than I first gave it credit for to be honest I was mentioning to you before we started recording that the first time I watched it I actually didn't think there was much there I thought this was just Scorsese kind of doing a commercial favor for Universal because they let him make The Passion of the Christ and being like, okay, you call it in the favor, let me do one for you. <laughs> and I'll almost be a uh, kind of like journeyman director in it. But it's not that at all. There's so much um, going on that I'm excited to dig into today. Yeah, that's really, that's so, that's so cool. And like, it, it is one of those where um, looking at like how, you know, we talk about like the remake going hard. And, you know, like, the, the level of violence is cranked up. The level of, like, you know, moral ambiguities is cranked up from the original as well. Um, and it's interesting because I feel like even in 1991, it's breaking certain taboos. You know, and, and even, you know, the original movie, um, even though it was censored, um, you know, for 1962, there is a lot of heavily dark material that is implied in that in, in that film, you know, in terms of, you know, Katie being a rapist. You know, in the movie itself, it's very much like you can interpret it as him, you know, being a violent, um, you know, uh, a violent person who assaults women. Um, but, you know, it's it's very much a case of, you know, he is, he is a rapist piece of shit. And yeah. then in the remake, you know, they already have that baseline level to work with. So instead of it being like a thing of like, you know, it's scarier what you don't see, Scorsese flips that on its head and is like, well, actually, it's it's scarier when you do see it you don't understand the level of of brutality and violence involved and 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 de niro is just completely like transformative in in that role as katie like with with mitchum it's like a like a slow kind of like he i guess like the way with mitchum i would look at it he feels like a like a a slow calculating predator whereas like with with katie it's like someone who has turned all of his rage you know onto like onto Bowden. like i think that's the one of the other interesting things there um but yeah yeah like as a villain you know i think he even, he even mentions it a few times throughout the movie that he's like transformed his own body to withstand all of his pain he's transformed his mind from you know not being able to read to knowing the intricacies of the law over this 14 year uh, prison stint and he's kind of like this larger than life character but the brutality always comes through and again even though i've seen it before watching it again last night you know scorsese doesn't make him a funny character earlier on but he is so 
over the top. You know, he's he's sitting on the family's wall while fireworks go off behind him. He's got this like over the top. His dumb drop. little hat, man. His he's dumb got... little hat. His dumb his little dumb, hat. His dumb little hat. His dumb but very stylish shirts. His over the top tattoos. Like he's presented as a threat, but also as like a caricature. But then you get. Even though you know what he's done in the past, you get the first scene where he brutally assaults someone, and that is ridiculously harrowing in the way it's shot in the performances. It is, you know, unbelievably intense, and in terms of setting him up as a threat, as someone to be intimidated by, not just because of the way he looks, but because of what he is capable of, he's almost, you know, unstoppable, even right to the very end, you know? Yeah, and that's that's the other the other thing is like with this one he doesn't get his just desserts. You know, he yeah. he 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 emerges like a storm and goes away like with a storm as well. Oh, like you know, like he opens with that, you know, the clouds are forming or whatever and, and the storms forming and then he leaves because nature takes him back. There's something very very eerie about that because in the original movie he walks on a pleasant summer's day right into um Bowden's courtroom and then the finale, you know, that's the one thing i really don't like about the original film is that even though it's very much like <clears throat> definitely has its noir elements to it um the finale is very safe you know um it ends with with uh sam overpowering katie uh and katie being like just shoot me and katie's like i'll never turn to the dark side oh sorry yeah. but sam's never like i oh, know i won't turn to the dark side you're gonna you're gonna rotten in prison for the rest of your life and the thing is like even the original movie is a film all about limits of the law and how the law you know um will fail you in many different ways i think a lot of people can attest you know to 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 the legal system you know failing them in different ways and you know it's interesting you could go down a certain path with that and talk about you know right like you know civil rights and stuff like that you could totally go down that route that's not really how i think of the movie i think it's much more a case of like how inadequate the justice system is so it's really weird that in the first movie you have this whole thing where katie is using the boundaries of the law to basically get at um Bowden. and then at the end it ends with him being like well, no, I will, um, you know, you're going to go away for, for life in prison now because you've attempted the, to rape my, my wife and daughter and you've killed two men or whatever. Um, whereas in, you know, the remake, it's very much a case of like, well, the justice system is a giant piece of shit. Um, Bowden still takes the law into his own hands and he doesn't get the personal satisfaction of any yeah. of, 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 of that experience, but he is still left fundamentally changed by it like him him and his family um you know like that that great opening where it's with the the title sequences where it's you get that narration i think it's from juliette lewis's character um where she's all like you know we had no idea how it would change us and at the end of it it's just like the the bright red looking in at their eyes and like the, the thousand yard stairs and stuff and the idea that like you know there isn't an ending to these stories like the the yes. violence repeats itself constantly you know the trauma of it and we see that with that initial victim as well when she is like i don't you know in regards to both the failings of the justice system but also that idea of like there is this this stuff this stuff never leaves you yeah i think i'm I'm pleased you brought that up because that was the main thing that i noticed on the rewatch was that how much the remake is telling the story of you know how institutions like the justice system like the police like private eyes you know like they ultimately fail the character in every turn and it like it gets almost kind of ridiculous to uh, to a point of how much they drive that home because every 
person with authority who Borden has been like told will protect him, will upheld the law, will look after citizens quote unquote like him, you know, the kind of middle upper class, middle aged white dudes with a family and a picket fence, and he's failed by them at every turn. And to be honest, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about the messaging because it does have a lot of great salient points specifically surrounding the scene where we catch up with um the woman who was assaulted i'm completely blanking on her name now which is laurie isn't it it's laurie um, yeah yeah. when you know he comes in to see her and he's kind of compelling her to testify you know she makes this really great and really guttering kind of speech about how she's not going to do that because she's seen how people in her situation have been treated when they've been put on the stand where their personal lives have been picked apart where what they were wearing on the night is being picked apart how much they were drinking etc etc and just how that kind of like you know adds to the trauma of what you've already experienced with what you've already experienced and will fail you at a governmental level as well as a personal level that which is kind of that was one of the most harrowing scenes on the rewatch to yeah be honest. totally and like it's it's interesting because you can go down that road with the fact that um katie feels betrayed by by sam because he didn't do his duty as a, as a defense attorney you know he didn't fulfill his his client's um best interests you know but it's the whole thing is that his charge could have been lowered if um bowden brought to the surface this his victim's previous quote-unquote promiscuous history and also um the knowledge of of her being underage um but Bowden, because you know he's not a piece of shit he realizes that should not be a grounds on which we decide these these judgments that should not be a mitigating circumstance you know a violent offense a rape is what it is um and it's interesting because you get to the end bit where kd is having his mock trial and i feel like there's a line i might be making this up but i feel like there's a line where he talks about um sam like forsaking his brotherhood or something like that like you had a duty to me as a fellow man or whatever and i feel like that is another another cutting element of of the remake where they kind of go with that direction where it very much feels like you know they have that moral ambiguity of Bowden purposefully selling his client up the river but at the same time you know that 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 certain element where it's like um he's doing this for obviously you know because katie is a fucking monster and he yeah. doesn't want him to to harm anyone um and i feel like that element is is interesting it is it's an interesting kind of like admission isn't it because he is a lawyer who believes in these systems but knew 14 years ago that those systems would let or at least lower the sentence of this guy who's committed you know these atrocious brutal crimes so i like that that is their right from the beginning and there's quite a small scene where he goes to his other lawyer friend for help and he's talking about the situation played by and... fred dalton thompson the king yes! of 90s movies <laughs> <laughs> yes. and he goes to him and he's talking about you know his history and then he lets slip that he buried that report he buried that evidence that could have helped uh, this guy get off and this other lawyer just doesn't kind of like he he sees that as a moral failing on him. He just kind of, he keeps repeating, bury the report, bury the report, bury the report. But later on, in another scene, once he finds this out, it's very quick. And again, I thought I was maybe making it up myself, but he keeps badgering um, Borden to then kind of commit perjury on the trial later mm. on. He kind of it's a very quick scene. He comes in, and uh, Sam shouts at him. He says, "You know that's perjury. I'm not going to do it." 
and it's just I couldn't quite connect those two dots in my brain of like everyone has their limits of what they will and won't do within this system but they seem to be fine with letting someone else do it for them and turn a blind eye perhaps yeah no totally because you have that obviously in the remake where and i loved i think this might be my favorite way that a remake has ever brought back original cast members before like mitchum playing the um the police chief and then you have gregory peck as the 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 slippery southern lawyer um and yeah you have that where it's basically you know mitchum's character is asking them to read between the lines you know there are certain things that operate that, that fall outside of the law's purview which is a literally insane thing to say given these guys might be the arbiters of justice yeah. um and there are similar conversations that i had in the original in the original film too um where you know uh, Sam goes down the private investigator route again. Um, but the thing that I find interesting, again, in terms of the diverging paths that these movies take, so in the original film, uh, Kasich, I think it's, um, it's not it's not called Kasich in the original one. He's called blah, 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 Charlie Sivers. And then in the remake, he is Kersik. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting that right. Um, so in the original, he's played by Telly Savalas, who I love, you know, Telly Savalas, he's, he's great, he's, um, he's a great guy, but he's very much like, um, like a classic noir, um, slightly rough around the edges protagonist, but he's ultimately a suave looking guy, you know, he's very much got his wits about him, he's competent, he's, um, got, you know, Sam's best interest in heart, whereas in the remake, the PI that he hires is sipping on Pepto-Bismol and whiskey, and, comes across as a clown there's that great confrontation he has once katie has made him um and he he reads him like a book instantly it's like i'm going to assume that you were a former cop or maybe you weren't good enough to be a cop um and the remaining portion of screen time we get with that guy is basically him clowning being a big clown and sam having his full trust in in this guy who's who's you know I hear the clown honking each time he takes a <laughs> takes a step. You know, he's all there, like like ah, you know, you stand your ground, stand your ground. Oh, we can get some boys to beat him up. Oh, I'll be good. You know, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do this, and then like it ends with his, you know, getting just completely, you know, one of the most brutal deaths in the movie. And yeah. I like that that depiction that we have, where in the original film, it's never the individuals at fault. It's um, it's it's the system. Whereas the remake, there's a tacit acknowledgement, or not tacit acknowledgement, there's a complete acknowledgement that individuals comprise the system. So, of course, they're going to be faulty individuals. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just going to the PI again for a second. I love I love how much of a bozo he is in the film. <laughs> like, you mentioned some of the things he gets wrong there. Like, the guy gets made immediately. The three dudes that he sends after uh, Max, like... Bike chain guy. <laughs> yeah, bike chain guy gets tooled on. Uh, and then I love after that where he's phoning uh, to apologize. And he asks if uh, Sam uh, Bowden wants, like, three more guys, three better guys to go and try the job again. And then, of course, at the end, you know, he sets up this elaborate plan to trap Max in the house. and ends up getting his brain blown out after uh, being garroted. Like, I just... That guy sucks, and he should. I like you said, you know, he's made straight away. He, he is probably probably the vibes that I got uh, a cop who wasn't good enough to be a cop, and is now presenting himself as this authority figure, as this guy who knows what he's doing, but in reality, sucks and is a bozo. Yeah, and I think Joe Don Baker, he's he's brilliant in that role, um, and I I love how. I love how clueless, like, the family are in this situation as well. Like, again, like, it's Gregory Peck, leading man, strong guy. Um, you know, he he's 
he knows what he's doing. There is a moment of fault later in the movie where, like, this Sam, he uses his family as bait to, to take, to, to draw Katie out. But by and large, he knows what he's doing. He's, he, he has moments of weakness, but it's never a case of, like, the movie ever makes you think that he isn't, he doesn't have the power to change the situation. Whereas with here, Scorsese takes the power completely away from him. You know, it's like, I think I read a letterbox review last night where it's just like, it's just Katie handing him L after L, like at every <laughs> single opportunity. Like, it's very much a case of like, the heroes never win in this film. Yeah. Even when they win, they lose. Um, and I'm a sucker for a good noir movie. I love a good noir movie that makes me feel like shit at the end. Yeah. It's, 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 it's what I live for, really. Um, and I can't believe how much this movie makes you feel like shit, especially in the finale. But I did want to ask you something specific, you and if you will permit me. You know, we were talking on. there about individualism and about you know the state being at fault and whatnot. And this is kind of where I was a little bit muddied on it because whilst I do think they make a lot of really salient points, like he said about you know the failings of a lot of these bodies and how they do impact individuals, you know, at a real personal level and results in trauma, results in trauma not being resolved, etc., etc. I I was trying to place this politically, and you'll know this about this way better than me. I know, obviously, this released uh, post-Reagan, you know, into the Bush years, but uh, it still, to me, had, like, a lot of Reagan vibes about it in terms of the kind of focus on the individual and, like, how much like those institutions will fail you and ultimately uh for better or worse like it's down to this guy to kind of like strap in stop trusting pi stop trusting the government stop trusting lawyers and solve the problem himself on his boat somewhere Mm. down the line that's interesting because i feel like you could read into that being like a pro stand your ground take the law into your own hands thing but i actually think the movie goes in the completely opposite direction and i think it's interesting that you know it's it's set in the deep south where we have these you know very very loose stand your ground laws i'm actually gonna I'm, I'm, i'll come back to this because it is interesting but to diverge slightly in the original movie when katie is introduced he looks at a picture of i believe i think it is i could be getting this wrong so please correct me if it's wrong he looks at the courtroom that um that uh, Bowden is working in. I feel like there's a portrait of FDR on it, a very liberal right. president from, you know, wartime and, and, you know, responsible for that New Deal, that post-war consensus, you know, the idea of there being any kind of welfare system in America that comes from FDR. And it's like juxtaposed with, with, with the South and the idea of, you know, what is a deeply, you know, even at the time, obviously there were d- big Democrats in, in the South and stuff, um, but very socially conservative um, and then you get to to the nineties, where very much it is the case that like those southern politics have like been the thing that have that have brought the Republican Party to to dominance over that preceding decade, with like leading into evangelical stuff, especially under Reagan. And, you know, Nixon came in under the southern strategy and stuff. And we we have that explicit mention of the stand your ground law. You know, that idea yeah. that if someone comes into your property, you can do what you want with them. You know. Uh, and it's parodied hilariously in 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 the Simpsons and the Cape Fear episode where Chief Wiggum's like anything you can do to them is nice and legal, and then he invites Flanders around and he's like it doesn't work if you invite them over. Um, but that whole thing I'm getting to is the idea that even though there is a modicum of a good outcome here where Katie doesn't get to terrorize them anymore, nothing that Sam does in regards to that puts him in 
any kind of positive situation. It's a case yeah. of he introduces a gun into the house, and it's interesting as well because he's he's anti-gun. You know, he yes. he's a he's a very he's a liberal character. He's placed as a, in in juxtaposition to all these other figures around him. You know, like the idea of like the the PI is like saying he like show me your hands. What would be a good gun for you? And he gives him the little thirty-eight snub nose and stuff. It's just interesting that it, it, it there are subtle moments like that where I feel like the film is taking the piss out of you know gun ownership in a way because it's very much a case of like even though they use it to as a means of self-defense here at no point is the gun ever turned on katie at no yeah. point does the gun give them any protection if anything you introduce that weapon into that situation and it ends in violent more violence you know it ends in the death of the pi and even when they're getting assaulted with the bike chains and the and the the tire irons and stuff katie turns it on them as well and it's 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 hilarious because you think about gun violence in the states it's mostly idiots who don't know how to use firearms um resulting in accidents and 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 the PI, you know, he gets garroted, so he probably would have died either way. But yeah. the gun doesn't give him any protection whatsoever. And I think, like, if anything, this movie is very... It, it's its almost like a... It's its a reversal of the repelling home invasion. Like, if you like it to think of, like, a film that is, like, about repelling home invaders, I put Cape Fear on the opposite end of the spectrum where it very much feels like there is no power here. You know, violence happens, like the tides you know you get you get it sweeps in it gets swept out and it kind of it reminds me a little bit of texas chainsaw in that way where it's like mm. you know like shit just happens shit just happens you might be able to get away but ultimately horror is random and there's nothing you can fucking do about it <laughs> yeah yeah and it's it's it like going back to what you mentioned there about like the gun being introduced what i think is like really interesting is that the pi even warns him when he's asking for a gun and he says like look i can take you out back I can teach you how to shoot accurately at these bottles, but it's going to be a completely different thing when you get that moment of hesitation to take this guy's life, which you will because you've never shot a person before. And then what are you going to do when Katie takes Mm. that gun from you, turns it on you and has none of those thoughts. And that's exactly what happens at the end where he does get the gun and stuff. So there is, this is, this is why I'm conflicted you because there are so many things like that where I'm like, that is really interesting. You're subverting, what I thought you were saying politically. And then there are kind of the the things where it is so damning of the state. And some of the specific lines I just thought were, I I actually noted a few down uh, (laughs) because they, they, they stuck out. There's the, there's a moment where, you know, Katie goes to court and the restraining order is actually granted against uh, Bowden, like a Sam. And um, they're talking outside and, you know, Nick Nolt is given this, like, really enraged performance where he's talking about, you know, people like me, uh, they think I'm the threat to people like uh, Katie, you know, like, what's going on? And it, he even name drops, like, he essentially says, oh, the ethics committees these days, you know, are wrapping us up in red tape uh, and pointing the finger at us. And I just thought that was maybe an interesting comment about, like, the perceived kind of threat to, like, that kind of upper middle class like yeah, the lifestyle that I mentioned, totally. like they they don't feel protected against what mm. they perceive to be, you know, lesser people or whatever. Uh, certainly, criminals on the streets, and like they're the real criminals. They're getting mm. their day of reckoning. I just thought that was uh, interesting, and I couldn't quite decide which way, which side of the fence the film. Yeah, what, what the film was trying to say necessarily with. That. I don't. I don't necessarily think it's trying to make a statement about that, other than that you could yeah. maybe read into it that that Bowden, as a liberal defense attorney, is actually quite hypocritical. Um, yeah. And like you know, whatever side of the political spectrum you fall on, you know, the law is malleable. It can be used and abused by people who you know are representing 
bad people and also people who are you know working in in favor of quote-unquote law and order so i totally i totally get that but the movie just like it never feels like it's getting on the point of like a a dirty harry or like um you know even to use you know example like cobra like cobra is the most paranoid movie about sickos ever the idea that like anyone could just come after you and all this all this red tape it's just uh, i can't uh, red tape in my face i can't can't do anything (laughs) about it you know whereas with here it feels very much a case of like even even though katie is is using and abusing his position um it never feels like because i think in my mind i don't think that like you should ever have like full faith in the law to like protect you you know there are some things that you know the police won't waste their time with or whatever or quote-unquote waste their time with you know the law does not offer absolute protection and i think that moment of weakness there where he's like all these goddamn ethics committees or whatever he's the real guy no i think that's a moment of him showing like hypocrisy and 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 you know because he's probably used those same defenses to to you know get his own clients off the hook i think interestingly and and i think i think i I can't explain it really with peck's character because i do think he is just a stereotypical like slamist southern lawyer who we get in the original movie as well um which probably does lean more conservative but i wouldn't describe this as necessarily leaning into those politics i don't think anyway no i think you're probably right i just needed to Mm -hmm. help (laughs) <laughs> you to help me pass that out because you are right about him being a, a hypocrite as well that's another thing considering how repulsive katie is he does read people well you know in that absolutely horrific scene where he's trying to seduce julia Lewis's character you know he's talking about uh, the hypocritical nature of her parents you know telling her off for smoking weed while you know they even admit in the very first scene that we see them in about how they used to smoke weed when they were younger and stuff and are we being too harsh and then like this dude has these hypocritical tendencies all the way through and i do like that scene uh where he's talking about the ethics committees with that in mind is that kind of him being the the biggest um the biggest and most noteworthy scene where he kind of like verbalizes that and you kind of see the image that he has of himself versus who he really is kind of uh, Mm. crumble in a way well, you have that as well with um, with the implied affair that he's having with Laurie. Um, and you'll notice that in the first scene where we're first introduced to his daughter, played by Juliette Lewis, he handles her very similarly to how he handles Laurie when they're playing squash. Um, he, he, like, leans into her, picks her up, um, and, you know, it's meant to be deliberately uncomfortable. Um, like, the, the very much a lot of this movie is, is, is not well is, is Bowden being aware of his his daughter and like her coming into that that kind of like tricky age where you're growing older and that's that really uncomfortable scene where after katie has made a move on her she's lying on her bed and he's oh, like yeah. you need to like put some clothes on and like she's there giggling because she doesn't really you know after the after the confrontation or whatever and he's like rough handling her and everything and like there's deliberate moments here where it's 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 I don't have the life experience to draw upon what what the film is is intimating in this scenario. Other than that, men are creepy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the the takeaway that I took from it because that scene in particular is you know to get that and Katie scene back to back, it's just you know unbelievably uncomfortable. But a huge shout out to Juliette Lewis, by the way. Oh, so good in this un- movie. Believable in this film, especially towards the end when they're on the boat man like mm. she 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 plays and the, the tears are coming out oh my yeah, god man. she plays the terror so well but i also think she just gets the kind of 
innocence and youth of that character down as well through her mannerisms. Like, you can tell you're looking at a child, which makes those scenes even more uncomfortable. It's someone who is acting like a child with the mentality of a child, with the mannerisms of a child, easily swayed and whatnot, uh, even though she's obviously 16 in the movie. But still, you can you, can, you feel like the, the youth and the innocence in that way. Yeah, and it's it's the, the saddest thing to me in that scene, and I think it's like the the high point of her performance um, is the dialogue where she's bargaining with Katie and it's just like, it's, it's terrifying. Like it feels like, you know, she's at such a young age there, but she's already aware of the, the, like the, the mechanisms in place to try and diffuse a situation where, where a man is terrorizing her, you know, like that's the thing, like the movie paints her as being quite naive at times in a way. Um, but you get to that final confrontation and she is fully aware of like, you know, trying, like being put in that situation when she's bargaining and stuff. And it's just absolutely harrowing. You know, it, it draws that out much longer. And like in the original movie, I don't know if you know, um, the scene with with Mitchum where he moves to to rape um, Bowden's wife, um, played by, yeah, Polly, Polly Bergen, um, she that that entire scene is actually like very very infamous because Mitchum genuinely did rough handle her during it and there was like lots right. of really uncomfortable improvisation going on is like he smeared like raw egg over her his hand was bleeding and stuff and she actually you know was severely injured and stuff um and that 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 scene is harrowing and it's also harrowing in when he moves to go on to Bowden's door in that film because like in in this one in the remake you know, he's got, like, camo on. He's got, like, his outdoor woodsman survival gear on. In the original, it's just Mitch who takes off his shirt and he's slithered around like a snake moving to assault these people. And it is so right. disgusting and creepy. And it's very drawn out. But I do think that the horror of the hostage situation you have at the end here where, you know, Bowden is completely powerless. He's being kicked and stamped on mercilessly on the floor. Um, it's just... It, it's truly some of the most uncomfortable... <clears throat> like cinema that i've ever sat through um, yeah it's like yeah. like you said especially when you kind of realize just how powerless they are like you know Bowden's on the floor hands behind his back you know tied up and even when um like, like the juliet lewis's character tries to escape and you know sprays him with like the kerosene and he sets on fire and stuff like that doesn't do anything like it yes it it, it, it burns him but he just as quickly gets back on the boat just as quickly gains the upper hand again and it literally takes like for lack of a better word an act of god in the storm for there to be any way out of this doomed kind of situation and you feel that you feel like this is not going to go their way they are literally powerless in this situation no matter what they do they've brought a gun they've brought a flamethrower and it's not been (laughs) enough you need a a literal you know freak storm to uh take katie away on the current while he's uh speaking in tongues yeah and that like the tongues scene is just incredible like we all know how good bobby de niro is we all know how good he is um but this like it's just on a whole other level to me like he is just completely transformed in this film to me i feel like even you know like he's such a versatile actor there are still films where you're watching you'll go eyes ah, it's, it's all bobby you know with here it's like it's so 
unrecognizable at times like in terms of how much he's immersed himself and i have to say as well the um the actual filming uh the way it's arranged with the boats like crashing uh, against the river you have that great shot where Bowden goes over the uh, the railings and the camera does like a complete like 360 spin yeah oh my god it's so good um like there's so many like old school techniques going on in here whether that be you know the driving scenes in particular it's very much made to kind of like not you know mirror but replicate the the whole you know green screen background driving with the 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 steering wheel and stuff but there are some great like proper like oh i love that shot (laughs) absolutely man like i'm pleased you're pointed out that shot in particular because it's such a maximalist movie from the performances to the script to the filmmaking and shot choices like that you know scott says he i don't think he reuses the same shot twice all the way through <laughs> the film he's constantly finding like inventive ways to film this action and especially for a ending like that that is kind of like surreal in a lot of ways those kind of shots that defy gravity or you know completely turn your perspective around uh just kind of like sell the anarchy in the chaos and the you know the terror happening on that boat you've mentioned uh the word biblical a few times at the start of this Mm. um podcast and that's the only way i could describe the climax of this movie especially when you have those two characters just beating shit out of each other with big rocks Nolte over and over again. at the mouth just okay. <laughs> how good of a shot is that where he picks up the big rock and his face is like all red he's frothing at the mouth like you mentioned he looks like a classic horror movie villain in that shot and that's why this movie is a horror movie in a lot of ways it has mm-hmm. it frames the characters in such a way that you know they are terrifying they are striking and they they leave an impression on you whether that's the so-called good guys or the bad guys in the film like everyone gets a moment where they are animalistic and you know properly brought down to their most uh, base human survival attributes or whatever totally and this is why it's good dad movie fodder as well because it's one of those movies you can watch and like you know ethical questions about the law like someone just leave it a son if someone ever if someone ever came out on my property i'd, I'd shoot it's like, you don't even have a gun no, i'd shoot him <laughs> you know what i mean like there's that kind of like that um the idea of being leaned on so hard and the lengths you would go to to protect your family or whatever but again i feel like this movie is effective because it shows that you have no power and it really is all about blind luck um yeah. and yeah, just like he comes, he comes in in a storm, goes out on a storm, um, a proper whirlwind warpath of a performance and story, and just yeah, like it. There's there's nothing else I can say about De Niro, and it's it's just such a good, it's such a good performance. And I I love as well that it's like I mentioned how in, in the original Mitchum is very like you know like it's like a cool snake, you know, he's very much like a um you know a, a little rascal there are moments in the original where they, they they kind of make him out to be like a bit of a you know um a kind of rough around the edges unpleasant uneducated man but he's still you know smart and the kd of the remake is smart as well but it's very much a case of like he is learn all the tools of the trade here they really lean into the fact that he has put all of his effort and energy and and, and everything into becoming a nuisance um and just slowly slowly turning the screw and um it's i I like how de niro is able to accurately convey that that idea of like a man who you know hadn't 
basically came from like I'm trying to think of the right word to say here, but the idea that he had no like no facilities to begin with, and then he he is like just spent every single day of the past eight years thinking about that and just oh it's just so good because that that moment where they have that first confrontation in the car and then and, and he's like oh you'll know about loss and then Nick Nolte's yes. like what what and he just walks away I'm like oh so good <laughs> yeah when I think you're right like just the way he sort of he's like the he's like a nightmare American dream isn't he he's literally someone who kind of like pulled up his bootstraps and got good at being smart so he could dish out some revenge and get his murder on it as it were but yeah like Robert De Niro in this movie like it's such an interesting thing with Robert De Niro and the roles he was picking even with Scorsese around this time obviously this is only a year after Goodfellas so he's kind of Reverted. That completely shocks me. Every time I, I look at the dates on this movie, I was like, Matt, damn, Marty, you were, like, going through him. <laughs> Marty, across the 80s and into the 90s, was an utter machine pumping out these movies. It's crazy how he kept the quality up, mostly across the board. I've really come to um, appreciate his 80s work in particular, going back through his uh, movies, because he's really taken some risks in there and nailing them a lot of the time even with kind of strange commercial efforts like the color of money you know which is the sequel with uh tom cruise and uh paul newman have i just discovered that that is the that i didn't know that scorsese did color of money i have to say his 80s stuff is a big blind spot for me i think i've I've gone into the 70s and then the 90s and then there's no stuff but the 80s is a big blind spot I think it is for a lot of people. It certainly was for me, and it was a period that I wasn't looking forward to. Not to make this all about just Marty, but uh, it was no, a period it. I wasn't looking forward to necessarily because I'd heard, you know, that a lot of them were duds, that a lot of them were kind of attempts at commercial hits that didn't quite, you know, go his way or go the way of the studio. But a lot of them are just kind of like fascinating pieces of work, and some of them, like After Hours, for instance, have become like top tier Scorsese really want to watch <laughs> for me oh you and i i genuinely think you would uh you, you would love yeah. that movie it is it is nuts and it is it's great it's scorsese doing something interesting but anyway the point that i was going to make is like even before then robert de niro was like making choices with scorsese that were like heavily influencing his movies and which movies he was making like he wanted to do he wanted to play a comedic character so they did the king of comedy he wanted to do raging bull so he convinced martin scorsese to make that even though he initially wasn't quite asked about it and then i like that even though they kept teaming up he was always doing something different and then just after goodfellas which is kind of like this era defining movie and role for him specifically one year later he does a total 180 and plays this brutal uh serial killer piece of shit that can still you know charm you because at the, at the end of the day it's you know young sexy robert de niro and if you don't know about his crimes if you look at his <laughs> cool hat and shirt maybe you would be charmed you know yeah totally i think he, what, he did frankenstein a few years later as well so like yes yeah like get a weird night just... <laughs> such a good actor though i do think we talked about we talked about katie's wardrobe here but i do think it's something that he comes out obviously the the, implication what he he went away for how many years is he away for is it like i think it's 14 yeah so the in the original it's eight in this one it's 14 so that would put it in the 70s then and he comes out with the 70s clothes on and it's like the specter of the 70s are coming back to haunt the 90s if you want to get really historical with it you could be like hey 
You're all there, comfy in your cool 90s nostalgia. You sweated through conservatism to get your luxury. Well, here's the deal with the devil that you made in the 70s. And he's coming back. That's oh, how you could do this. That's, an, that's just formulated in my brain just then. You could totally do that if you wanted to. <laughs> and I'm going to you, and I'm going to rip that off so much and uh, have to credit <laughs> you for that. I, I love that idea, yeah. Just in, in terms of, like, how... Because let's talk about, like, the costumes and the set design. Because mm-hmm. they are so important to this movie because they give it so much life and so much character. And yet, you know, they could have deeper thematic uh, meanings, you know, like that. I love how, um, like, Katie, like, as he goes through this movie, he starts out, you know, relatively well put together. You know, people in the film are actually surprised at... That he drives a nice car, that he's got his, <laughs> he's got a nice haircut, he's got a nice outfit. But by the end, after he has held onto the bottom of a car and drove for hundreds of miles, like you were saying, you know, he just kind of like devolves into this massive grey. He is covered in dirt. He's even wearing, you know, like nondescript clothing, you know, blacks and greys and stuff. And he kind of becomes this person stripped of those. Um, what would you even call them, you know, affectations or kind mm. of, like, visual signifiers of, you know, status and that mm-hmm. you belong to a society. And he becomes, like, this kind of, you know, like like I said before, this, this uh, like animalistic kind of, like, primordial, like, villain that sweeps into town, like you mentioned. Yeah, I think it's the wolf in sheep's clothing idea, isn't it? The idea that he he's masquerading as a well-to-do citizen, and it almost feels like he's he's doing it to to laugh at Bowden and just get under his skin. Like, oh, you know that I'm really a complete bastard, but I'm gonna wear these. You know, I'm gonna drive my fancy car. I'm gonna wear my fancy clothes. I'm gonna be like, oh, I'm just wanna really just wanna settle in New Essex. I just wanna settle here. It's a nice little place to settle. Whereas by the end of it, you know, he is he is stripped. He doesn't have to pretend anymore. He can just be the 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 biblical warpath demon that he actually is. Um but I do think that I think that's an interesting point. It's not something that I thought of before, but I think very much now that it is a case of like, you know, he comes out and after he strips off that first outfit that he has where he comes out in his old 70s garb, he's in costume. You know, he's, yeah. he's playing that part. And like even that bit as well when um, during the trial, well, during the um, the, the the restraining order hearing where he's he's um, playing up his injuries and stuff. He's very theatrical, this kid. Yes. He's very, very theatrical. Whereas that's not a thing with the original. The, theatri- the, the original, it's very much a, a matter of fact. You pissed me off. I'm going to hurt you. Whereas with here, it's like he's toying with his food the entire time and just enjoying himself and really, really kind of loving it. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great creative diversion from the original. And again, I really love the original. The original works for me. Whereas you look at like all those thrillers where it's like the idea of just this this pristine little middle American family being terrorized by an unseen force. It's something that I, I come back to over and over again in terms of like movie themes. You know, it, it, it's it's enduring. You you go from Cape Fear to like Clute the conversation. You go all the way up to Enemy of the State with Tony yeah. Scott if you want to. That idea of just any old normal family being terrorized. Whereas with you know the remake, it's 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 even though it is a normal family. Um, there's 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 insidiousness lurking beneath the surface, which I think makes it an even more potent um, kind of ver- twist on that 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 I, that story type. I think. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, we were getting a lot of movies that were trying to do that with the idea of the family around the time as well. Like, obviously, Blue Velvet is, like, yes. very yeah. famous of literally showing you in the opening scene, you know, <laughs> the, the, the dirt and the grime behind the white picket fence. And it's like, this is what filmmakers were fascinated with um at the time i want to say i had this idea while i was watching it because i was thinking about what if they remade cape fear again who could Mm. play the max role and the only actor that sprang to mind for me was john bernthal i think he (sighs) might have that down because i he honestly uh de niro's performance reminded me of some of my favorite bernthal roles and you're I right you would be right good with that thank you're you you're right you're right you're totally right because he's he's i think that's so that's such a good that's such a good shout closely bernthal has played like villainous characters before you, know, yeah. you think of like his role in sicario or whatever but he has he still has that that goody archetype that kind of like i'm not gonna say gentle giant more like um a cuddly rock like he's <laughs> he's very much like he's jagged and he's got rough edges but he's still a nice guy. He's got a kind face. Yes. I think that's what Max Cady always brings to the table is that the idea that, um, you know, even though De Niro is very versatile as an actor, um, you know, with Mitchum, it was him breaking out of type. And then I think reading up about this as well, they were considering, you know, Harrison Ford wanted to play um, Cady. Yes. Um, I think, was it Spielberg or Scorsese who wanted Murray? Yeah, Bill Murray. Sp- Spielberg yeah. wanted Bill Murray, I think. Yeah, and I think, I think, that that idea of the the role that subverts expectations is interesting because obviously De Niro, it's impossible for him to subvert expectations when he's so versatile. Whereas if you you do take that route of like, oh well, we'll get someone to kind of really go against the comfort zone. I think Burnthal is an incredible shout for, for I would Max like Katie. To see that. I would Make it happen. absolutely him doing his little <laughs> little little angry <laughs> grunting noises. Oh, it'd be a good time. Maybe we could bring it full circle because obviously the original, uh, you know, had Hitchcock involved. And then when Martin Scorsese came around to remaking it, was very much inspired by Hitchcock. Maybe if someone remakes Cape Fear again, they will actually make it feel like a Martin Scorsese movie or maybe even like a Steven Spielberg movie because he was still a producer on this film. Get John (laughs) Bernthal in, get like three layers of meta production to that. and You might have something perhaps yeah i'm not entirely sure what i love sorry to just keep rambling on do it is that i love the rambles just talking about the production there like sparked a memory like i just love that this is universal in martin scorsese's commercial movie because it did do well at the box office it made, it made a shit ton it made it a did. shit ton was it like 182 million 80. worldwide on a 35 million dollar budget there you go wild. so Martin's they don't make them like that anymore. <laughs> they certainly don't. Marty's biggest box office hit at the time, I think that is correct. But it's nuts to me that Universal finally let him make The Last Temptation of Christ. And they said, okay, if, you, if we let you do that, you give us a commercial hit later on. And I love that they, de- like they decided on a remake of Cape Fear that is this brutal. This was their commercial gambit. This was what they thought would succeed. And then it did, which is just nuts. But I think it. I think it succeeds partially because it it exists on the ba- like KD on the fence. Oh. It exists in the boundaries of 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 you know it it, it it's it's very much. You're not going to get into the the thriller horror debate here, but it's very much like a thriller with that 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 spills over into horror. So it can have all those horrific elements, but still be palatable to as mass an audience, you know, yes. as as possible, which I think helps. Obviously, De Niro is a big big draw too. But, you know, I think, like, 
um it just it, it exists perfectly it, it's it the perfect storm if you will like the idea of it like um like you have that that people wanting to go see a movie that they think will be suspenseful going in for like a hitchcock type vibe and then you know once scorsese has them in their grasps he can then crank up the heat a little bit more and you know um it's just great and like again one of the all-time great movie themes i always think a good movie theme helps a, a movie's chances of lasting cultural value um, i think you're right and it yeah. does go hard and you are right that you know there is certainly a certain broad appeal in it which is why i do think it constitutes as a dad movie outside oh, of the yeah. themes you have the actors you have those kind of like masculine themes within that and then you just kind of have how effective it is as a uh chiller in a thriller for most chiller of it. yeah chiller. I, oh, I know I'm getting into just, you know, ridiculous subgenres now. And I know that you had Ash Millman on this podcast who does not believe that thrillers <laughs> Number exist, one thriller I... denier. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. Um, but I honestly, like, I, I, I'm i kind of like, I, it's not really a discussion that I really think about that much anymore. Like the thriller horror debate, because like over the past year, I've gotten way more into my horror again, which has been nice. a nice little welcome journey. Um, and yeah no i just think i think cape fear is a big achievement i don't think it's like um i don't think it's as obviously like as nuanced or as you know epic as a lot of other marty movies like i feel like you know it's not like a, a goodfellas or um or a, an irishman in terms of i fucking love the irishman so much yeah. um but like for me what it does is it shows his talent at versatile filmmaking and yeah. his appreciation for the craft as well like the idea of like you know we talk about like tarantino being the master of homage or whatever um and i'm not going to say that this that the the 91 cape fear is derivative because i don't think it is at all i think it is the perfect remake in the sense that it takes what was great about the original it takes the spirit of it and twists it into exciting new dimensions i just love how he has managed to he manages to fuse um his own filmic sensibilities and and marry them with with the hitchcockiness of it all it very much feels like an old hollywood movie at times um yeah. but with but with um the, the the censorship completely taken away from it and that's why it's so fascinating to me it's like i watch it and i'm like yeah you can say like I, if harrison ford played Bowden in this movie <laughs> as much as i love harrison ford it would just be another harrison ford movie it would just be another harrison yeah. ford thriller Whereas with the Knoll, it ends a, you know, a little bit more of an everyman quality to it. But I've, I've completely forgotten where I was going with this point. But it just, it feels like, um, just, the it feels so unique to me. Like, even though, like, it's, like, it's, it's easy to look at it as being like, oh, you know, Scorsese's big studio hit or whatever. Um, he, never for a second do I think that he's, like, you know, taking his foot off the pedal here. It just feels no. like, it's, you feel the, the affection for the genre. You feel the, the innovation, um... And it's just, it's great. And what he brings out of the actors here is all, you know, we mentioned Juliet Lewis. She's so good, but I don't think there's a single Duff performance in here. Um, I it's, it's all brilliant. Agreed. Like, the cast on paper is good. The cast in practice is somehow even better. And I fully agree that, yeah, this movie could have just been not phoned in, but you could maybe feel them, uh, you know, just kind of doing what needed to be done to get bums in seats to have martin scorsese come in and make a martin scorsese horror movie but like you said the the influences are there the passion is there and i don't think you get these performances out of these actors if you don't care about the material at all and it just feels like a remake done right you know uh, someone who obviously enjoyed the original 
but could see the limitations potentially of its era in terms of the, in terms of the censure in, uh, in terms of the censorship and in terms of the perhaps more conventional and simplistic ending and gone we want to keep the bones of this we don't want to change too much but we want to add the depth and i don't think i think a lesser filmmaker doesn't add the depth they just play the hits and then they take inspiration from hitchcock and then they push it out and it still does well but it, it's not a movie that we're still it, talking about all these it years could later. have it could have been a, a psycho situation it could yeah. have totally gone down that route but I think that the good thing about the original Cape Fear is that even though it is revered, it's this big, you know, not quite as big a taboo breaker as Psycho in terms of, you know, the first movie with a flushing toilet or the first movie, you know, whatever. is She was doing immoral illicit acts on camera and it's completely <laughs> different. Where it, it breaks its own taboos and, like, it's revered by people who are aware of it, but not to the extent of, like, you know, anyone who would approach that material and feel slavishly devoted to having to repeat every single beat um and that's why i think it's great i think it exists as its own thing and i think that's kind of it's 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 encapsulated by bringing mitchum and peck back and having yes. them play such you know um completely different roles to what they had in the original uh, and I, I i fucking love mitchum um just as just a supremely good actor Absolutely. Um, and and peck here you know like one of the most one of those gorgeous Hollywood leading men ever, you know, the, the, the bedrock of, of that kind of like post-war golden age um, and just playing like, I think this is his last film role as well, just playing like the, the slimiest guy ever. It's just great. I just, Dude, I think man. it's, it makes me, even though it's such harrowing material and it's so uncomfortable to watch at time, watching it and I, it's a theme that keeps coming up on the podcast. It's basically to do Vin Diesel. It's basically to go to the movies. The movies. <laughs> the movies. It's a great times. <laughs> Look, I don't want to. It's. It's. I didn't. I wasn't planned on saying this because the subject matter is so gross. It's so heavy. It's so brutal. But Marty's just cast a lot of sexy dudes in this movie, man, and he lets <laughs> them be sexy in certain scenes. And I'm like, oh god damn, man. Like even Nick Nolte, who, you know, not to be, you know, not Nick Nolte, shit, give Nick you Nolte. a jolt. <laughs> He's got some. I think you described them as sexy glasses. Uh, oh, he does. He if 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 he, man, if if a smarter man than I would put out a tweet of a steal steal his fit look or be like, ah, <laughs> oh, only the slutty men, only the sluttiest men wear Nick Nolte's glasses from Cape Fear, nineteen ninety one or something. I think you're right, and yeah, and you're completely right about this. Just feeling like cinema, you know. This is this is the movies cranked up to eleven. If someone was like Josh. What is the movies? I would show them, you know, the opening credits of this flick and be like, there you go. That's it, don't. I would show them the scene of Robert De Niro sitting on the wall with the fireworks going off behind him. I would show them that moment of Nick Nolte picking up the rock and being (laughs) covered uh, in slime, in blood, in his own spit and having the lightning flash behind him. Like, that's the movies. It is the movies. But yeah, I think I think we have we have eked all the blood out of the Cape Fear stone here. I don't think there's there's much else to talk about here. I I do have to ask, you know, I think originally you gave this a three stars on, on Lady B. Has has the opinion changed now? It has. It has. The first time around, like I said, I enjoyed it aesthetically, but didn't enjoy it on a deeper level. This time around um i enjoyed it much more and i think that's because you know i knew i was going on this podcast so maybe i was looking for more but also i do <laughs> think it pressure. benefits you felt the pressure <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I'm honest. Oi, you, you have no idea 
like the Cape Verde. I've been, I've been nervous to come on this podcast. I've been really nervous. <laughs> what am I doing? Do, I wanted to do a good job. I'm talking like Ash Millman now. Um, what was I going to say? Yes, but uh, I really appreciated it even more within the context of watching all the Scorsese's in a row because, it, you know, I feel like that is... It's, it's, uh, it's kind of like the last one he does before he kind of goes completely in a new direction. Like, Goodfellas is obviously, you know, a magnum opus, but then after Cape Fear, he goes on to do Kundun, and he does The Age of Innocence, and he kind of, you know, makes these interesting artistic and kind of like art house movies that kind of directly come after this maximalist commercial hit. And I just think that's, it's interesting looking at it in that context. Mm. Those are more movies that I need to watch. I've, my my watch list is just it's getting it's getting bigger and bigger. This, this, dude, I'll tell you now. Oh. I just I stopped adding things to my letterbox watch list because it just became a <laughs> graveyard. So I thought no more, <laughs> no more. Oh, I've committed to just getting the physical media now. So if there's a thing on there and I can't find it anywhere, it's like well, another one to the collection. I'll just have a little little treat. Well, I was listening to your uh, the the podcast on um, Cobra and how it was initially going to be Terminator. I yeah. hate when you have a movie in mind and suddenly it doesn't exist. Exorcist Three was one for the longest time. No, good. yes, right. You know what the other the other stupid thing about this as well, Josh Brown, is that I have these movies when I'm thinking about like the doing the different like thinking of the lineups of different months or whatever or like um, things that I have in mind that I want to watch. It's because I've been slowly brainwashed while browsing different streaming services, and they've taught, they've they've flickered across the screen, and I go, oh, "I'm not in the mood to watch that tonight, but I'll watch it like some other points." When it got to the Halloween time, I was like, "Oh, Cape Fear would be such a good shout." Always see it on on Sky Movies. I think they have, I think they have both the OG and and the remake, so I'll just, you know it's totally fine. <laughs> Guess which boy I had to rent both the original Cape Fear and oh. and the remake. Uh, for this because it just it happens i've just made peace with it at this point and this is why blockbuster needs to come back because there's yes. it's an illusion it's a complete illusion of choice there is no choice we need it we need it back we need it back Ewan, i've had this at the weekend because um are you familiar with ghost watch the bbc horror with michael yes. parkinson i nearly i nearly watched it the other week because it was at star and shadow cinema and i yes. didn't Ah, I was coming back from a gig, I think, and I was really annoyed that it was the one... Because the world should revolve around me. I am the main character. <laughs> when it was on on the day, I like, couldn't go see it. But yeah, Ghostwatch was one that wasn't available for years. So I had to go out at the weekend and buy a bloody expensive Blu-ray of it. But it was mm. still satisfying to finally own a movie like that. I love and hate the fact that films just aren't available because it means i can't watch them instantly but it does make it satisfying when you do get your hands on it and you feels like you've tracked something down i've been having uh open warfare with other people on ebay because i've been trying to get my mum the original john carpenter 1979 elvis movie starring kurt russell um i can't find it anywhere it's, it's, I, I put in a bid for a blu-ray that the, the starting the opening price that the seller had was eight pound yeah. And then some some fucking Billy Bull, big bollocks uh, guy was like, I'm going to make my opening bid uh, £15. So then I'm coming uh, in like, well, my maximum level here for is like for a Blu-ray is going to be £20. I'm not going to go over that. So I put in my bid. And it's like, personally put it in that bid so their maximum bid would be £26. Like, for God's sake. And I, so I, wasn't, I didn't put anything else in. And I've come back to it the other week. And it went for 35 quid. 
That's ridiculous, man. It's so funny that you mentioned that movie in particular, though, because when I went to see Baz Luhrmann's Elvis earlier on this year... <laughs> I still haven't I... seen. That's what I really want to watch as well. Unhinged. Completely he's unhinged. white. <laughs> he's, he's white? Um, but then afterwards, I saw that John Carpenter had made an Elvis movie, and obviously, I wanted to watch that as soon as I could. And like you said, nowhere to be seen. And I just don't... I'm not good at eBay. I get very stressed at any kind of auction <laughs> or anything, anywhere. Hey, but about hey, but Elvis. Hey, but about <laughs> hey, we got a we got a drunk up as Elvis. It's uh, three hours long. It's on the DVD. It's on Blu-ray. Uh, so I couldn't do it. I can't bring myself to it. So what I'm trying to articulate right now is that if you do end up getting this movie and your mum watches it and she decides that it's bad and she never wants to watch it ever again... <laughs> Uh, it would be a really good Christmas present for me, uh, or Josh a birthday Brown. present. It's uh, oh. it's my birthday in January, so you got time. Well, that's, that's actually, that actually works out. Okay. It's, it's just a little bit the old Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God bless you, Josh. Um, where can everyone find you? Everyone can find me. Um, I would like to plug, if if I may, the What Culture Gaming podcast. If you like Do video it. games, you can find me. Uh, twice a week, Mondays and Wednesdays, and the Friday podcast with uh, my colleagues Jules Gill and Scott Telford are also good. But if you just search What Culture Gaming on Spotify or Apple or anywhere else you get your podcasts, you look will, at this, uh, folks! Big farmer moving in to bully out the little guy. <laughs> and also, if you want some of the some of the worst takes you've ever seen in your life, you can follow me on Twitter.com at Josh Brown. But the Brown has two O's, so it sounds like Brune. Mm. All the leaves are brown <laughs> and the sky is grey. Little mamas and mamas and papas joke here. Um, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be guarding the letterbox, the letterbox, the deep dark secret, or can people find you on there as well? People can, people can find me on there for even worse ticks if they want to. <laughs> uh, I'm just on there with Josh Brown, I think, I think is the, the name. Probably Josh Brown again. Uh, and I am on there for uh, increasingly... <laughs> horny, I would argue. Horny. <laughs> <laughs> I have to suppress that element in my reviews as well. I feel it. I feel that we've all got that dog in us, Josh. We've all got that dog in us. I was watching Night Moves last week, and there's a scene where, after having sex, Gene Hackman uh, is heating up fondue at the edge of the bed, and he's got one foot over his wife's titty. And I, was, I nearly made my review. He just liked me for real, and I was like, no. <laughs> I must suppress that thought that I have now expressed to everyone on this podcast. Never I had fondue. That. <laughs> no, that's perfect, man. I love that. Yeah. Um. Thank you to our patrons. This is a, just getting another plug here, folks. Thank you to our patrons, Thomas Rulgru, Shaka, and Josh Brown. Thank you so much. Remember, you can go check us out at patreon.com forward slash we love dad movies. Uh, I've not actually had the time to write because last week there was a little game called Gotham Knights that came out that devoted all of my time so there's no hey. been not been any not been any movies movies writing um, but i'm going to release the 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 next batch of movies that we're doing this month uh i'm gonna enlist scott telford to do demolition man because i feel I like that, that he never he never stopped talking about demolition man and <laughs> when i suggested it when i suggested it to him he was like Oh, I hadn't thought about that. I was like, Scott, that was your entire that was your entire being for like you and <laughs> I know, right? You're gonna get him on this podcast and you're gonna think you're gonna talk about Demolition Man. You're gonna talk about Gotham Knights. It's all you're gonna talk about because that man <laughs> really liked that game. And there's... I'm glad. I'm glad yeah. there's another one. I'm glad that there's two of us out there. It's good. <laughs> but yeah, 
This has been the We Love Dumb Movies podcast. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter if you're not already doing, which wouldn't make any sense either way, I don't think, given that this is how most people find the podcast. But you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash you in ruins things. And you can follow the We Love Dad Movies podcast on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash we love dad movies. Once again, this has been Ewan. This has been Josh Brown. And Josh, you'll have to come back at some point. I'm going to get you to come back so you can do your ultimate dad movie. And also, you. you know, you can come on anytime. Come on, come on anytime. Listen, just, just walk on. Just walk in. I would love to. I'm, I'm actually planning on overstaying my welcome on this podcast do rather it. than being invited on to the point where you, we're going to do one of these and you're going to finish the podcast by saying, please don't come on it more. I don't want you on it ever again because you've been on too much. But thank you for having me. It's honestly been a, a pleasure. Oh, and I yeah. look forward to this all day. Uh, oh. Thank you very much. Oh, I love you. All right. <laughs> we'll see you all another time. Bye. Bye.